Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Policy Pack Software, now part of Netbricks, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And also brought to you, of course, by ControlUp end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. Control up. Happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Panos Panay, the Chief Product Officer for Windows and Devices, posted an article this week titled, A New Era of the PC, restated, quote, Next month, we're bringing new experiences to Windows that include a public preview of how you can use Android apps on Windows 11 through the Microsoft Store and our partnerships with Amazon and Intel, taskbar improvements with call mute and unmute, easier window sharing and bringing weather to the taskbar, plus the introduction of two new redesigned apps, Notepad and Media Player, end quote. So it looks like the Android apps on Windows 11, we'll be seeing the light of day pretty soon. I believe it was added to preview just before the holidays. This is a feature that people were expecting when Windows 11 initially launched. ZDNet reports that the wording on the Dev Channel Windows 11 blog post currently states that these builds are also not matched to a specific release. New features and OS improvements from these builds could show up in future Windows releases when they're ready and we may deliver them as full OS updates or servicing releases according to Microsoft. So kind of vague on when it may be introduced. Will it be introduced during just a routine patch? All those features, not just the Android apps, or is it going to be part of an actual OS upgrade? I would think for Android apps, it would have to be part of an OS upgrade, but I guess we'll see. ZDNet also reported that last year, Microsoft officials said that it is moving to an annual feature update schedule for Windows 11 and Windows 10 starting from this year, 2022. Microsoft has said that Windows 11 and Windows 10 features updates will be in the latter half of this calendar year. And Mary Jo Foley reported that she's hearing that October is the target at this point. So if you speculate like I just did, then the Android apps might be part of a major upgrade. It could be later in the year, but we'll see because it was a pretty major feature and it did enter preview last year, at the end of last year. So stay tuned to find out because I'm sure I'll cover it once it's released. On a previous episode of the podcast, I covered a story on how Microsoft seemed to have their mindset on little by little migrating over options available today in Control Panel into the Settings app. Well, Beta News reports in the recently released Windows 11 build 22538, Microsoft introduced numerous changes and additions, not least of which was the arrival of voice control for the touch keyboard. But buried in the release notes, there was also an interesting entry relating to the control panel. In the change log, Microsoft says, for those who need it, you can access ncpa.cpl directly again. 
and until this build was released, attempting to open that would result in users being redirected to the advanced network settings section of the settings app instead. So it seems like a little bit of a retreat, at least for this one advanced network settings menu. Me being a creature habit, I do tend to use those shortcuts like mstsc.msc, for example, services.msc. So maybe it's simply to allow pros and developers to go back to those familiar workflows. It would be interesting to see if they keep it this way, reverting back, or if they're going to move forward and maybe just have that shortcut redirect to the new settings section. I guess we'll find out. Firepharma.com had a very interesting story on Merck, who suffered a crippling cyber attack about five years ago that led to $1.4 billion in losses. Merck had been in the courts against their insurers in a dispute over whether or not the losses were covered by their insurance policy. Merck's insurers have said that since the cyber attack originated from the Russian government as part of its hostility toward Ukraine, the losses should be subject to an act of war exclusion. Merck has taken the opposite stance, obviously, as they would. And this week, New Jersey Superior Court Judge Thomas J. Walsh concluded that the act of war exclusion does not apply. And Bloomberg reported that that's because it's intended for actual armed conflict, not this cyber attack. In the ruling, they cited the plain meaning of the language in the exclusion plus earlier case law. The court found that the act of war exclusion does not apply, but sides are aware that cyber attacks from various sources have become more common. But the insurers didn't change their contract language to inform Merck that cyber attacks would be excluded. And having failed to change the policy language, Merck had every right to anticipate that the exclusion applied only to traditional forms of warfare. So this is going to create even more case law precedents. And it'll be interesting to see if insurance companies sure up on their end to make sure that this doesn't happen to them again. Probably expect insurance premiums to go up specifically for cyber attacks. Apple have patched multiple zero-day vulnerabilities, including the zero-day I talked about on last week's episode of the podcast with the WebKit that could also have affected even non-Apple browsers, so not Safari, other browsers on iOS and iPadOS specifically. It also affected Safari, obviously, on macOS as well. Well, there is another zero-day that has been patched as well, which is tracked as CVE-2022-22587, which is a memory corruption bug in the I.O. mobile frame buffer that affects iOS, iPadOS, and macOS Monterey. So, patch, patch, patch. Bloomberg have reported this week that NVIDIA is quietly preparing to abandon its purchase of ARM or ARM from the SoftBank Group after making little to no progress in winning approval for the $40 billion deal, according to people familiar with the matter. They also shared an account in their report from someone who shares more about their private discussions that I won't include on this podcast, but I will share a link to the story if you'd like to read it for yourself. And you'll find that at 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 214. Version 1.2022.110.0 of the MSIX Packaging Tool has now been released. 
and it has added the ability to automatically add detected fonts to the manifest, which is one less thing I guess you'll have to use the PSF for, along with some other bug fixes. A little bit disappointed that there is not more being included in these MSIX packaging tool releases, but I'm hopeful that little by little, some of the current limitations will be overcome. Sys internals tools, well, some of them got updates this week, including Zoomit, which now supports its screen zoom and annotation tools on Windows 11. RDC Man has been updated to version 2.90, and it receives support for restricted admin and remote credential guard, along with some bug fixes. Sysmon updated with fixes for a conflict with file delete and file delete detected events. And there's also some updates for WinObj, VMM Map, TCP View, and AutoRun. So check it out for yourself. And I'll share a link to that again with this episode. At Ignite in 2021, Microsoft launched the Zone Redundant Storage option for Azure Managed Disks. Short named ZRS, a ZRS Managed Disks provides synchronous replication of data across zones in any given region, enabling disks to tolerate zonal failures. This means that if a virtual machine becomes unavailable in an affected zone, you can continue to work with the disk by mounting it to a virtual machine in a different zone. So obviously zone redundant storage, built-in redundancy. However, one downside was the fact that a zonal resiliency is insufficient in the event of an entire regional outage. Thus. Azure Site Recovery now supports ZRS managed disks. So with Azure Site Recovery, you can protect your VMs that leverage ZRS managed disks by replicating them to a secondary region of your choice. If there is a regional outage and you are required to fail over to the secondary region, the VM that Azure Site Recovery will spin up for you in the secondary region will have a ZRS managed disks attached to them ensuring the same high level of zonal resiliency that you want in that new zone. So all welcome. FSLogix version 2201 is now available in public preview. In the what's new section, there was one item that drew attention from the community, and that was around the Windows 10 Enterprise Multi-Session and Windows 11 Enterprise Multi-Session natively supporting per-user search indexing and FSLogix search indexing being no longer available on those operating systems. Lee Jeffries was one of the community members who highlighted this, and there's a very, and there's a very interesting thread on this on Twitter where Steve Downs clarified saying that, quote, we are disabling FSLogix's search indexing capabilities on operating systems that have the relatively new per-user indexing that makes FSLogix's search index redundant. That seemed like a mouthful to say. Uh, he also went on to say, we received many support tickets from customers that have both enabled. He goes on also to talk about the office file cache location. So check out that thread if you're using FSLogix, it's interesting. There have been some updates to the Azure pricing calculator for Azure Virtual Desktop. Pricing estimates are now available for less than 100 and more than 9,999 users. So currently there was a sizing limit that the calculator could handle. People asked for a greater range and now it's there. 
They also added in some extra granularity to account for some costs that were not included previously. So if you've used the calculator before or you're even just contemplating Azure Virtual Desktop, now is a good time to try out the calculator. Bleepy Computer reported this week that according to Microsoft, they mitigated a massive 3.47 terabits per second distributed denial of service attack that was targeting an Azure customer from Asia back in November. The report goes on to state that two more large size attacks followed this in December, also targeting Asian Azure customers, a 3.25 terabits per second UDP attack on ports 80 and 443, and a 2.55 terabits per second UDP flood on port 443. This was a distributed attack originating from approximately 10,000 sources and from multiple countries across the globe, including the US, China, South Korea, Russia, Thailand, India, Vietnam, Iran, Indonesia, and Taiwan. It states that the attack lasted about 15 minutes and had multiple attack vectors for UDP reflection, including the Simple Service Discovery Protocol, DNS, Network Time Protocol, NTP, and also Connectionless Lightweight Directory Access Protocol. So if you've been following the podcast over the last few years, these denial of service attacks seem to be getting more frequent and also a much larger volume. I believe this still isn't the largest one that's ever taken place, but it is a record for Azure in terms of a denial of service attack. Bleepy Computer also had a pretty interesting article on Microsoft. Well, I say Microsoft, but it was a Microsoft employee on Twitter sharing Microsoft's lists of Windows 10 group policies to avoid. These are being recommended to avoid as they're considered legacy policies that should no longer be used on Windows 10 or Windows 11. And it includes policies like delaying restarts for scheduled installations, disabling application notifications, and more. For the full list, you could check out the YouTube edition of this episode, which you'll find at 5bytespodcast.com under the YouTube column for episode 214, or just go check out the reference links, click on the link, and you'll see it for yourself. Config Manager Dogs, or C-O-N-F-I-G-M-G-R Dogs on Twitter, who I'm not sure who's behind the account, but they're involved in Intune, SCCM, MECM, and Windows 365, because I've actually had discussions around Windows 365 and MEM with this person. Uh, But if you're using Intune, SCCM, and Windows 365, or you're planning to use cloud PCs to solve some business challenges, This person is asking you to DM them for a chat as they would like to have at least one customer call per week. So if you'd like to provide feedback that may influence the direction and improve the product offering for Cloud PC, reach out and set up a call for yourself. In the end, it helps everybody who uses the product. Finally, in the news for this week, I'd just like to say congratulations to my colleague and buddy Tom Fenton and also to Patrick Kennedy as their book, Running ESXi on Raspberry Pi, has already surpassed 3,000 downloads, which is very impressive because the book was released late last year. So congratulations, Tom and Patrick. That's awesome. If you haven't checked out the book for yourself yet, I strongly recommend it. And I'll share a link where you can find the book with this episode. And now, a weekly webinar. Well, I just mentioned my colleague and buddy Tom Fenton. 
Well, Tom and I are going to be hosting a webinar next week as part of the VMware Connect learning sessions, and ours will be on monitoring the availability of Horizon desktops and applications. If you'd like to learn about using some proactive monitoring and synthetic testing for monitoring the availability of your Horizon desktops and applications, plus more, and you're a VMware customer, head on over to the Connect Learning site and you'll find our session there. We'll be doing it on February 3rd at 4.30 p.m. GMT, which I think is 8.30 a.m. Pacific and 11.30 a.m. Eastern. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. This week I saw Dev Toys was shared on Twitter and it looks really, really interesting. It's described as a Swiss army knife for developers. Some of the tools that's included in this are a text comparer, which is something I use Notepad++ and a plugin for quite often. So cool to see an alternative here. Um, if you wanna compare a couple of files of text, maybe from doing different traces and see what's different, this could be useful. But they also have a hash creator, a different file type conversion tool in there, plus more. So if you do some scripting and development work, check this out. I also saw a pretty cool tool by Pingcastle that provides an Active Directory security health check in seconds. The cool thing about this tool is it requires no installation, uh, no admin, no data sent to a cloud. It's just looking at your AD and generating a report for you. To see an example of a report, check out the YouTube version of this episode. But if you can't and you're listening to the audio only, it shows some things like risk level in your environment, uh, number of stale objects within your environment, a look at different privileged accounts, and more. So some pretty cool details. The awesome Troy Hunt shared a cautionary tale this week about his Azure bandwidth costs that ended up biting him in the butt and costing him 7,000 euros over the holidays. It's very interesting to read because you see how he stepped through figuring out what caused the sudden spike in costs and what he could have done better to avoid it in the future. So if cloud costs are something you worry about and it keeps you awake at night, this probably won't help you sleep any better, but you know, in the end, you can learn from Troy's mistakes as well. He was very open and shared what he did wrong and what he could do better. So I think we could all learn from it. A short one, but a good one. I saw that Yaflet Wamu had a blog post on building an expense report application with Microsoft Power Apps. So Power Apps is something that seems to be ramping up in popularity. And if you wanna to try to build your first Power App, Using this blog article, go right ahead. It's a good start. Also in the tech community by Microsoft, I saw that there is a blog on how to create a site script and site template using Power Automate in SharePoint. So Power Automate is a product that I've been using since they released the Windows 10 desktop app or desktop version. If you've never used a robotic process automation tool before, this one is free for Windows 10 and above, I believe. I don't know if it works on Windows 11, but it's definitely available for Windows 10. And it's a nice little introduction. It's pretty rough around the edges, honestly, particularly if you've used a different product like maybe Automate. But it's pretty cool for just maybe, you know, dipping your toes and getting your feet wet. James Rankin had a really great blog post on creating a chocolatey package for the Citrix Virtual Delivery Agent, or the VDA. If you're not familiar with chocolatey, 
It's a really awesome, powerful resource of many, many different applications that you can just execute from a command line. So, I mean, if you just want to use it to actually install applications on your machines, your personal machine, you could do that from commands. If you want to inject it into your actual application delivery in your environment, like SCCM, MECM, or whatever, you could do that. Or like me, you could integrate it into your own automation process for packaging and delivering your applications. Though I'm not using Chocolaty at the moment, I have been trying to use Winget just to try that out, but I have used Chocolaty in the past and it is a pretty awesome product. Finally, to plug some of my own work, a couple of episodes ago, I believe, I covered that Numescent had released a new product called CloudPager. And I went ahead and I published two blog posts because I was lucky enough as part of the cloud paging user group. I'm one of the leaders. They gave me access to the product early on because they shared it with our user group before they shared it with anyone publicly. So I was doing a session on application delivery for the festive tech calendar, which by the way, the video is still available on YouTube. I'll share with this episode with the links. Um, but I was going to show off their existing product, their content delivery network, their cloud offering. But since we had seen it, I saw the cloud pager in the user group meeting. I asked them, like, could you give me access to it? So if you actually check out the festive tech calendar video, you'll see that the version I'm using says like confidential preview because it hadn't been launched at that time. And I did very little with it because I didn't want to give away too much before the product was launched. And, you know, I only got access the day before my session or recording my session. And I was a little nervous because I don't work for Numescent. I didn't know how much I was allowed to share, how much they wanted me to hold back. So I only used one application as an example in mine. But I've since been using the product much, much more over the last few months. And I created some blog posts going through different features like the ability to actually deploy non-cloud paging apps. Like you can deploy things like MSIX and AppV directly from their cloud pager because it's a container management platform for Windows desktops. It's not just cloud paging. So you could do things like deploy your applications kind of with a container like Ethos for auto updating the application seamlessly. It keeps a revision history so you can quickly roll back any changes in case something goes wrong. It's a pretty interesting pivot from them. And just personally having worked in the application virtualization, application packaging and application delivery space for, Jesus, <laughs> I think over 15 years now. Uh, it seems like the well has gotten a bit dry out there. A lot of products that did exist in the past have gone end of life. Some products would be going end of life. There's not much competition in this space, but as I see it, with a ramp up in desktop as a service, like cloud services, and just a return to application conflicts. I mean, you see things like Remo 3, app readiness, and products like that that are going back to addressing things like application compatibility that seem to be less of a problem, but it's being reintroduced as a problem again. There's got to be some products out there to help you avoid some of this. And I, in my opinion, if you've followed the podcast or you've read my blogs in the past, cloud paging has been my favorite for that because it's had such a high rate of success and, and it doesn't have any real compatibility issues like the likes of AppV or ThinApp did in the past. But anyway, I'm waffling on like I do because <laughs> I, I wrote the blog post and it's fresh in my mind. You can read the blog post if you want to find out more. And also, if you'd like, you could join our cloud paging user group. 
I think we'll be having our next session in February. I haven't formalized anything yet. The leaders of the group have been discussing and we may ask Numescent to come in and speak again. So we've had a few different sessions. Some were Numescent were not invited in because we wanted to keep it without them and just do our own stuff. Um, for this one, since CloudPager is launched, I think we'll have them come back and maybe showcase the product and also address some questions we had just in general with cloud paging that came from the community. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.